You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's sermon. Please turn with me in your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 2. I'll be reading today Genesis 2, 4 through 17. 4 through 17. Let's stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers, the name of the first is the Bashan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Amen. You may be seated. We've worked through the prologue of Genesis, and now we enter into the first main section of the book. I remind you, as I mentioned in our first sermon, that each section begins like what we see in verse 4. These are the generations. You see that, you know you're entering a new section in Genesis. This one is a little interesting. Because the others will say, these are the generations, and then they will mention a specific individual. And then they'll tell you something of that individual, of that person, of their, of their heritage and their legacy. And specifically when we see these are the generations, that word generations is especially a, a genealogical reference. And in fact, those future sections, when it says these are the generations and tells us of some person, it then will go on to tell us of that person's offspring that it's considering. So it's a little interesting here because in verse 4, it's the language then essentially of the offspring of the heavens and the earth. Of course, heavens and the earth don't give birth, but uh, it's a bit metaphorically put to describe the immediate beginning after the heavens and the earth are formed. Uh, that uh, this is basically the beginning of now talking about the first humans on earth. That's really what we're beginning here. Uh, in fact, today we won't even talk about humans. 
We'll talk about a human. We're only going to get into uh, one human today, Adam. As God makes Adam and puts him here in the Garden of Eden and begins to interact with him there, you can see in our little outline, first we'll talk about the Lord God, then we'll talk about Adam, then we'll talk about Eden. If you're hoping to hear about Eve, you got to come back next week. Let's begin then, in our first point, to talk starting about the Lord God. We're talk about the Lord God. Verse 4 tells us something about God for the first time in the book. It tells us that God is the Lord. What am I talking about? Well, I'll explain. Up to this point, Genesis has spoken about God in terms of God. It used the generic Hebrew word for God, which is Elohim. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. But now when you get to 2 verse 4, it speaks not just of God, it speaks of the Lord God made the earth and heavens. The Lord God. And you'll notice in your pew Bibles, like most English translations, they take that word Lord and they put it in all capitals. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. And that's a convention that many English translations use to clue you in to the word that's here in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word here is not the generic word for Lord in Hebrew. That's the word Adonai. The Hebrew word here is rather that personal name that God told Moses at the burning bush, typically pronounced in Hebrew as Yahweh. Yahweh. So when your Bible has the word Lord in all capitals, like it has right there in verse 4, that's telling you that the Hebrew has this name of God, Yahweh. By the way, some in history have pronounced that word Yahweh as Jehovah. Likely, Yahweh is a more accurate pronunciation. But if you hear people use the word Jehovah, they're referring to this same word that we've got in all four capitals here. They're just pronouncing it probably wrong. But Yahweh, Jehovah, that's what we're talking about. Yahweh is how I'll refer, refer to it. And so in chapter 2, verse 4 here, it's saying that Yahweh Elohim made the earth and the heavens. Yahweh Elohim, because it's got both words here. Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And let me make sure you appreciate the significance why I'm taking a little bit of time to notice that here. The word Elohim is a generic word for God. But the name Yahweh is specific and personal. Make, 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 make a point here. Like, if you were any of the number of heathen pagan nations back at this time, around that time, right? You would have been fine using the word Elohim. You would have used the word Elohim to speak of your own deity. But they, those pagan heathen nations would not have used the name Yahweh to speak of their deity. Again, remember that Genesis was recorded by Moses in the context of God's redemptive work when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, when he was redeeming Israel from that house of bondage. God redeemed Israel from that Egyptian slavery, and he used Moses to do that. God first appears to Moses to call him to that task. Remember where he did that? He appeared to him at that burning bush. That bush that burned but didn't get consumed. 
There is when God first identified himself to Moses as the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses, I think he's got a little bit of Peter in here. Moses says, well, what's your name, God? And Moses uh, is told by God, Exodus 3, Exodus 3, verse 14, I am who I am. So that's a bit of a mouthful. So he then, in the very next verse, says, So tell the people, Yahweh, the God of their fathers, has sent you, Moses, to redeem them out of Egyptian slavery. See, Yahweh in the Hebrew is a shortened version of I am who I am. So what's my name, Moses? I am who I am, so tell them Yahweh sent you. That's basically what what was going on there. And so throughout the Hebrew Old Testament, we see that name of Yahweh as a personal name being used to describe the God who made the heavens and the earth. It's therefore intimately connected as well with the redemption of God's people from Israel, from Egypt. And so then the word Elohim, God, is generic, and the name Yahweh is personal and specific. That language, that name Yahweh, draws us to remember how God at the Exodus had, had come down from his heavenly throne, down this, this uh, uh, interaction with his people, uh, how he would really work in this special way, in this special relationship uh, with his people. There in the Exodus, and all the way as you then go into Mount Sinai, and you have him establish that Mosaic Covenant. So the word, excuse me, the name Yahweh, it really conveys so much of a, of a personal, redemptive, covenantal aspect of how God has related to humanity, how he has related to his special people. It's especially the name we think of when we think of how God condescends to interact with humanity. We especially think of Yahweh. And so chapter 2 here, verse 4, brings together both names, <coughs> Yahweh and Elohim. I want you to understand this is not very common in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible that Moses recorded, putting together Yahweh and Elohim. Not very common. But in, the, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's used exclusively and repeatedly as we see Yahweh God, Lord God, beginning here to interact with Adam and Eve here in the Garden of Eden. I think it makes great sense to see the name Yahweh used here for the first time as we begin to see God interacting with his people in a personal and covenantal way. We'll talk more about the covenantal aspect of this passage in probably two weeks, I believe. Uh, there's so much here, I have to pick what I do each week here. Uh, but but it, it makes sense to see the name Yahweh here because of this way he's interacting with humans here, Adam and Eve, uh, in this personal, covenantal way. To see the name Yahweh appear is it just is what you'd expect compared to just the more generic term Elohim. 
very consistent for how Yahweh gets used in the Bible. But the fact that Yahweh and Elohim are paired together, put side by side throughout chapter 2, chapter 3, it's wonderful. It's saying something wonderful. Realize what it's, it's saying. The same God of chapter 1, the same God in chapter 1 who spoke everything into existence, that God who made the heavens and the earth, he's also Yahweh. He's also the God who has come down and redeemed the people unto himself, who has brought them out of Egypt, who has uh, covenanted with him, who's given the law of Sinai, who leads them through the wilderness. The same God who made the heavens and the earth is the God of Israel, is our God as Christians. You know, think about it again. A lot of the pagan nations, they had their God and they thought, this, my God's the God of the field and your God's the sun God and this God's this God. No. Israel's God is the only God, the one true God, the one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who's here at work in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Yahweh God helps to make that connection for us. I think that's why it's repeated in this initial uh, dealing of, of God with man. So then turning to verse 5, we see that the account of Adam's creation is, is prefaced by mentioning that there was not yet any bush of the field in the land, nor any small plant of the field. Some have wondered if this conflicts with chapter 1, which placed the creation of vegetation on day 3, and the creation of man on day 5. People might ask if that has to contradict, and I would say, does it need to contradict? I don't think it needs to contradict. And instead, I think what this is doing here is now in chapter 2, we're, we're honing in to think about mankind, to think about the creation of mankind, to think about what mankind is going to be spending this time doing, which is agricultural work, and first and foremost, in the Garden of Eden. And so this verse doesn't necessarily deny the existence of vegetation in, in all places, but it does note a lack of some specific cultivated agriculture in the area of Eden. That, that's for sure what we know it's, it's mentioning. And verse 5 explains why such cultivated agriculture was missing there. Because there's no man to work the ground, as well as the Lord God had not yet sent rain, though there was some sort of mist or spring. You see, remember we looked at chapter 1, that an important work of mankind as he's uh, subduing and dominioning and, and, and exercising the image of God is an agricultural work. And that work is going to begin here in Eden. And so it's sort of setting things up for understanding man's placement here and function now in Eden. So in verse 7, the Lord God forms Adam from the dust of the ground. He breathes into him the breath of life. you got to love this uh, wonderful way it, it sort of slows things down and explains this sort of uh, wonderful way in which man is created. It's, it's a rather humbling and uplifting aspect about how we're created. I think of the humbling aspect, right? We're, we're but dust as humans. We're the same ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? And yet at the same time, it's the Lord God himself is the one who, who forms us. And the language is here 
of a potter making something out of clay. That's sort of the imagery that's here in the language here. The creator of all things gives us such attention to so wonderfully, even artistically, form us and shape even our physical bodies to be what they are. And he breathes into us the breath of life. That's when we become alive. It's a reminder that we have a physical, material aspect, but also a spiritual, immaterial aspect of our existence. On a side note, we don't see any room here for the theistic evolution of mankind. It doesn't say that God somehow made man of some previous life form. Right, that's what theistic evolution would teach, right? That, that there's creatures that are evolving, and at some point uh, they say that they take that God takes some sort of earlier form and endues it with them, some special soul to become at that point sort of Adam. But that's not here something that we can get out of the text. It's inanimate dust that God breathes life into it. That's the point. He becomes a living being. So there's just no room here for, for theistic evolution. Thinking about it being formed like this, I can't help but make just two sort of quick comparisons on the side to Jesus as the second Adam. Uh, the first comparison is think of the spirit's role here in, in bringing life to both the first and the second Adam. You know, in the Bible, the spirit and breath are closely related concepts. And while it doesn't explicitly tell us that the Holy Spirit was 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 the agency in some way, if it's I can't help but 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 think of some role of the spirit here and how the life is being breathed into Adam. And and if it can be at all inferred here, it's certainly abundantly clear when it comes to the second Adam. How is it of a virgin birth, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary so that uh, the second Adam uh, has his humanity uh, come, come to be? Neither, the point I guess there, is neither the first or the second Adam, this is the, the abundantly clear point, neither the first or the second Adam are born via ordinary generation. They're both, you know, the rest of us, we're, we're, we're ordinary generation. Man and woman have children, right? That's not how the first Adam came into existence. It's not how the second Adam did either. A second comparison between the first and second Adam here uh, comes in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Gives us some wonderful commentary on this verse here. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam became a life giving the first man, Adam, became a living being, referring to Genesis here. The second one, the second Adam, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Paul there is comparing the first Adam and the second Adam. He <coughs> compares our existence in the first Adam physically, that, that, that in this life we are dust like him. But Paul then speaks of Jesus from a, from a resurrection life standpoint. First Corinthians 15, that's the whole passage about the resurrection. And so he's then comparing the second Adam, Jesus, in terms of resurrection life. And then if we have found our existence in Jesus, we're in Christ. He brings us a new life. Paul's referring to that eternal resurrection life of the age to come, that, that just as God breathed into Adam, into this age, to give us life, so too Jesus, as the second Adam, breathes into us the spirit life of the age to come. 
remembering what we are in the first half. I'm just going to go back to the test. Remembering what we are in the first half reminds us of ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But that gives us opportunity here to remember now what we are in the second Adam, the future of resurrection life, which we've already begun to experience by the Holy Spirit here and now, a pledge of that age to come. Such life is unto a new spiritually sown body that will never know any corruption. Wonderful thing to think about. But our new bodies will be like in glory. And so then after the Lord God forms Adam here, notice God's interaction with Adam. Verse 15, the Lord God places him in the garden to work it and to keep it. To work it and to keep it. Man will be able to work the ground, to continue to cultivate it, to expand on the work that the Lord God has already done in planting that garden. As a side note, I think I mentioned this last week, but I'll mention it again. We see that work is not something inherent to man's fall into sin. It wasn't that once we fell into sin, now we had to work. No, before the fall into sin, we get to work. Work's supposed to be a good thing. And I believe even in glory, we should expect to be doing some kind of work. Here, the Lord God covenants with Adam in verse 16. It's what we describe as the covenant of works or the covenant of life. I'm not going to delve into that today. I will before we get out of these opening chapters just as probably two sermons from now. Because there's a lot to think about of that whole covenant and idea. But for now, what I want us to recognize, thinking of that name Yahweh, some of the personal and covenantal interaction that we see here between the Lord God and Adam in the Garden of Eden. Let's in turn in our, our third point and, and, and think specifically about this Garden of Eden. Notice the beautiful description we have here. Once God finishes his work in it, it's this place with rivers and trees and lush vegetation beginning to sprout forth. Verses 6 and 10 speak of all the water, from the reference to a mist or a spring. And then a river that becomes four rivers. In terms of vegetation, the garden is planted in verse 8. In verse 9, the Lord God has all these different kinds of trees. Probably truly both fruit and nut trees. And of course, we see these two special trees. We'll talk more about those when we talk about the covenant of works. But we see right now the, the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when we talk of paradise, the Garden of Eden is truly one of the first things we'll think about when we use the word paradise, think of the Garden of Eden. Now beyond these mere physical aspects, maybe mere is not the right word, but yeah, as wonderful as a place it is in terms of, of the creation aspect, in terms of water and trees and fruit and all those wonderful paradise type things we think about, theologians have been right to recognize it as a as a holy temple of sorts. As a holy temple. Biblically, think of what a temple is, an earthly temple. An earthly temple is a place of God's special presence among man, where man and God meet, especially for man to worship God. 
Here we see God and man interacting together, and in the weeks ahead, as we keep working through chapters 2 and 3, we'll see this all the more of Eden as a sort of temple. For example, next chapter, chapter 3, verse 8, the presence of the Lord God will be specifically described there, being there in the garden, describing God's Lord God's walking in the midst of it. There's a holiness to this Garden of Eden, and we see that holiness after Adam and Eve fall into sin, because they're expelled from the garden, and, and they're no longer allowed to even go into it. And even the job that Adam's given here to guard it, it's taken away from him and given, given to the angels. In fact, the language of Adam here, when it says for he's, he's to guard and keep it, when you use those words separately, they can be used in all sorts of ways, but when you look at when they're used together, you typically find them with regard to something with regard to the Levites and the priests, for example, Numbers 18.7 speaks of how the priests would, would do those two things. Guard and keep the, the tabernacle of Israel. So it tends to be, when they're brought together, priestly language. Adam's a priest in this, in this temple, which is Eden. And then you think of later on, you think of when Israel makes its tabernacle, or later their physical temple that they have in Jerusalem. There are architectural similarities with those, with the tabernacle and the temples. There's actually a couple temples, right? Uh, there's architectural similarities with those, with the, those later tabernacle and temples with Eden. Things that echo back to Eden. As an example, all three of those, the tabernacle and the two temples, their entrance was from the east along with Eden. Or like the tabernacle, when, when that lampstand is, is, is made, uh, and that's placed right in front of the Holy of Holies. It, the the lampstand is fashioned to look like a tree, and it's typically thought that that was to reflect the tree of life. And the, the lampstand also had other garden imagery on it. Or you go to Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 6 and 7, there's various descriptions of, of garden-like imagery as decor in that temple. See, the tabernacle, the temples, draw our mind back to the paradise of Eden. Eden is a place not just for the first man and woman. It was also a place of God. Scripture talks of this elsewhere. For example, in Ezekiel 28, it refers to it as the garden of God. Or in Isaiah 51, it calls it the garden of the Lord. It wasn't just the garden of Eden. It wasn't just the garden of Adam and Eve. It was God's garden. And so, Eden is a sort of temple, as a holy and wonderful place of man meeting with and enjoying the presence of God. Now, as we talk about Eden as such a place, I want to connect it then back to chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1, go back to the instructions that God gave man in chapter 1. There God told man that man was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and then reign over it. Connect that here with man being put in Eden. We've already begun to see that here in Eden, there's a sense in which there's a sort of subdued creation here at Eden with its cultivated agriculture and everything's under man's watch and keep and care. 
you notice that description of where Eden is at. Look at verses 10 through 14. There's these rivers that flowed out of Eden. We don't know the exact location of Eden given this description. Likely there were some significant geographical changes even after the flood. But one thing I think we can take from this description of Eden with all these rivers, if you ever wonder, why, is, why are we given this information here? I think one thing we can take from, from seeing how Eden has these four rivers flowing out is Eden is set up as a perfect setup to expand from there throughout the earth. Ever be fruitful, multiply, increase, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. They start in Eden. They can expand out from there. Notice even the wonderful treasures in store for them as they, as they find along the way the gold and the other precious stones as they begin to move out from Eden. So that's the sense you get here is that they would start here from Eden and spread out from there. God told humanity to be doing this and, and I think we should understand that they should be ultimately starting here in Eden and expanding that which is Eden. Expanding Eden through the earth. Expanding this holy temple of God through the earth where man as image bearer is, is ruling and reigning over it. That would be the idea of man and the image of God in the full. And it would also be at the same time man in covenant relationship with the Lord God in the full. Of course, the bad news, we'll see the bad news as we keep studying in Genesis. We didn't end up realizing that goal. At least not with this present creation. Man falls into sin. We get expelled from this Edenic temple. I think we can be okay using we, right? We fell. We fell, right? And Adam and Eve, but it's, it, we're, we're, we're bearing the ramifications of it as well. We're, we're all tied up. These are our first parents. Those are our first parents. We fell into sin. We got kicked out of Eden. And humanity will still produce, reproduce, increase, fill the earth, They'll still begin to subdue it and rule this present world, but it's still, in Milton's words, paradise lost. The holy place of God and man dwelling together on earth in submission to God and his image on earth that was lost when they fell. But to clarify, that's why the tabernacle and the temples have this Edenic imagery on it. The tabernacle and ultimately that temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem were essentially the beginning of a restoration of that which was lost at Eden. Beginning. A beginning of man's redemption to ultimately look forward to ultimately realizing God's worldwide Edenic temple vision. A beginning of it. I say a beginning. We've already begun to talk about this in our readings earlier today. What was there in Jerusalem with that temple, it was only a type of something greater to come. It showed that God yet desired to have that vision realized, 
but the earthly Jerusalem. And that earthly temple would not ultimately usher it in. That became clear when Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed twice now. But Ezekiel prophesied of a rebuild of an even more amazing temple. And we read in Revelation, likewise, he picks up uh, a similar prophecy in a little bit different terminology. Ezekiel puts it more in terms of a physical temple. Revelation puts it really more along the lines of, of Eden with so much emphasis on, on the tree of life there and the, and the, and the fruit and all of that. But, but they seem to both be describing how when Christ Jesus returns, it will be God and man together on a new earth of a paradise even greater than what we read about here in Genesis 2. And Revelation goes as far like we read, there won't even be a temple there because it will be a temple. The Lord God and the Lamb will be there. That's its temple. The whole thing will be one big temple set up on the new earth. Literally, heaven come down to earth because God and Jesus will come down to be with us, his saved people forever. Supposed to get excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> in conclusion, let me give us, as the Church of Jesus Christ, in a, a fitting application. I just made the point that in the end, we'll be in a final temple in the creation. But think of how we see that idea in the here and now. During this period, during this covenant, the new covenant time frame that we're in. The New Testament tells us we don't have a physical temple on earth anymore, not a physical structure. But that doesn't mean there isn't a temple. No, the New Testament says it repeatedly that in this covenant, at this time, God's people, Christians, are the temple on earth. Believers, we are the temple on earth. We as Christians should seek that the church be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and bring all the world under submission to Christ as King. Now I do not mean we should, that I'm not calling us to take over all the civil governments. I am speaking of advancing the church on earth. We are to seek to grow the church through gospel evangelism, through discipleship, to calling people to be saved out of this fallen world, to be made citizens of a heavenly kingdom. While the fullness of, 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 of what God has planned won't be realized until Christ returns, we are called nonetheless to work toward that and expanding us, the church, of the temple of God here on earth. Let us work and guard this church, which is the temple of God on earth, while we await Christ's return to usher us into the new creation. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for saving us as a special people unto yourself a people that you have covenanted with, redeemed, or in fellowship with, that we would have such a relationship with the Most High God who made the heavens and the earth and who has given us even life from death. 
Will you pray that your church would advance the cause of your kingdom here and now? Even while we await the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior at the end of this age to complete our redemption, even as he ushers us into the temple of glory in the new heavens and the new earth, where you will dwell with us for all eternity. And so we pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. <coughs>